Thank you. Thank you for attending today. Um, it's good to see everyone. Um, as um, I was so generously um, introduced, um, I'm Jackie Lubbers from Kelvin, um, and I bring um, kind of a, I'm going to switch hats today. Uh, I'm going to wear my provider hat, so what I know because I went to school and this is what I do for a living, and then I'm going to change to my parent hat um, because this is also a bit of what I do in my personal life. Um, I'll share the stories of my kids in just a minute. Um, so I'll flip-flop a little bit. Um, I am not here. Just a second. The running joke with my students is that I failed tech in graduate school. I've appointed a tech person in each of my classes to bail me out. <laughs> oh, I know what I did. I thought I was moving, so I took my thing out. I wonder. Okay, I am not here on behalf of any drug company. Um, I have no financial conflict of interest um, to disclose. I'm not getting paid by them. So what are my goals for today? Like I said, I'm going to share um, a bit of my own personal story um, using my kids. I'm going to talk about what I know um, because of where I work. Um, this is actually um, an interesting or something I think about a lot. How do we humbly collaborate, right, um, across our disciplines? Um, so as educators, you spend so many hours of your day um, with these kids. And when they come to me and I say, how's school going? They always say, great. And sometimes I think, I would like to talk to your teacher about that, because I wonder. And I say, how are your grades? And they say, great. Do you have any missing work? Nope. And I'm like, mm, I just don't know if that's true. <laughs> so um, sometimes I'm, I know I'm not getting the picture. Um, but so how do we collaborate across our disciplines? Um, because we all have the same goals in mind, right? We want to see these kids grow. We want them to be healthy emotionally, physically. We want to see them thrive as God's kids um, and use their gifts in his kingdom. Um, and so then we'll answer some questions at the end. Um, this is a little bit of an old picture of my um, family. Um, we can say that it's old because my son here um, is now six, three, six, two and a half. Um, so, but anyway, um, I want to talk just a little bit about our son's experience in school. Um, when he was in kindergarten, um, actually this started in young fives, but when he was in kindergarten, um, his very um, wonderful kindergarten teacher said to us in the fall, um, what do you think about him? Um, he's really busy, um, and um, we're having really impulsive. Um, he was having some hard times actually socially, actually more socially than academically at that point, because he was so much bigger than his peers. And so he would want to play ninja with his peers, and one of his peers would end up needing stitches. Um, that's just one example. Um, and so we, that impulsive hyperactivity, um, it wasn't surprising to us that after a battery of testing, he was diagnosed with ADHD, um, and he was started on medication as a kindergartner. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, as our daughter was going um, through school, um, she was very busy at home. Very, very busy. Um, she was busy from the moment she was born, I think. But we never heard it at school. School always went fine until middle school. Middle school, that turning point where I needed to, she needed to read more, write more, think more, 
the math problems got longer, middle school fell apart. She did great socially. Um, socially wasn't a problem. Um, but in, it was in middle school where we discovered our daughter really had kind of that in a ton of subtype, um, and she ended up on medication. As our son grew, um, we were getting some of that impulsiveness <coughs> under control, um, but we were still struggling a little bit with some anger um, that we then went on to actually diagnose as anxiety. And so we'll talk about how all of those things kind of came together. So I'm going to put my provider hat on a minute. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about um, what things are like um, in the mental health system um, during, and I don't know if we're post-COVID yet, um, I don't have to tell anybody in this room um, that the last 18 months have been horrible for children's mental health. Um, I had the privilege of having lunch last week with the new president of um, Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. He made the mistake of asking me after a short presentation, what questions do you have? And my hand went up immediately and I said, I want to know what you're doing for mental health in West Michigan. And I know not everybody here is from West Michigan, um, but I can hypothesize that your struggles um, are the same as they are here. Um, he told us that um, admissions to Helen DeVos Children's Hospital are up 70% from the year before. So on the day he spoke to us, which was last week, Tuesday, out of 120 beds at Helen DeVos Children's, he had 34 of them full with a mental health diagnosis. Every child with a mental health diagnosis gets a one-on-one -on -one sitter um, to keep them safe. So they had 34 sitters um, in their hospital. So they had a quarter, quarter, am I doing my math right? Yeah, of their bed space is full um, of mental health diagnoses. They have a list of 1,500 patients, that's 1500, <laughs> in their queue to be seen by um, a pediatric psychiatrist, of which they have one. Um, and so that person has lots of job security. Um, they're actually looking to hire six, um, and they have contracts signed for four. So that's a little bit about that kind of situation. As a result of that, because that entire layer of mental health um, support for children is missing, what's happening is that people are seeking care then from primary care professionals. They're saying, they're saying to us, we don't have anywhere to go. Can you help us? And we're saying we're willing to try. Um, so your patients who are seeking care right now are seeking care in a saturated setting. Um, and we're trying really hard to play catch up with them. Um, at the same time, um, you all know, my hunch is, um, that your insurance deductibles and co-pays and everything have gone up significantly in this past year. So at the same time, you have some families who are struggling with just the finances of life. The cost of living, living has risen a lot. Um, I can speak to this because we have two children who take ADD meds monthly. Uh, we spend about $200 a month on them. Um, and that's because we have insurance. A month's worth of um, my daughter's medicine is about $300 a month without insurance. And my son's would be about $450. Um, so just think about writing that into your budget. Uh, it's a lot of money for families. Um, the state of reimbursement. Um, so just like primary care providers are now trying to provide this care, um, we're trying hard. Um, we're not, it's really hard to get paid well to do it. Um, 
and so there's a struggle there that makes you want to limit how much care you provide, um, but you can't really do that because your patients need you. The challenges of coordinating care, um, if, let's say, for example, if I sent a patient to the ear, nose, and throat specialist because they had need their tonsils out, I get this really nice letter back from the ear, nose, and throat specialist that says, I saw your patient, took their tonsils out, they did well, thanks for the referral. Nice letter. If I send my patients to the psychiatrist because they have A, B, and C, there's no care coordination because mental health has its own rules about the information sharing that happens. So I don't know what meds they're on. I don't know what side effects they're having. I don't know what's been tried and hasn't been tried. We end up having to ask the parents to fill this all in backwards for us, which you know parents have a varying levels of reliability um, in what they can provide for you. And the last thing um, is this whole um, MAPS system. So from a provider view, MAPS stands for Michigan, I don't, so, I don't know, prescribing system, something. But what it's tracking is controlled substances fills. So as a result, when we're prescribing ADD medicines that are stimulants, we have to jump through about 10 hoops um, per patient we're prescribing them for. 10 hoops doesn't sound like a lot until you fill 40 prescriptions a day. Um, and then it really slows you down and you have to put a lot of workarounds in place. So it takes a long time to fill these prescriptions. So making the diagnosis and starting treatment. So typically, um, this is the way it went with both of my kids. We got to fall conferences, which are coming up um, for all of you with my hunch. And um, already had them. Um, and we were told by teachers, hey, I think this is something we should you know, look into. Um, and so we started the process by doing a whole bunch of evaluation materials, actors, counters, Vanderbilts, um, childhood behavioral checklists, all these sorts of things. And then we had appointments. Um, as a result of this mental health crisis, appointments are getting pushed way out. So you can get your paperwork in, but you might not have an appointment for two or three months um, unless you can get a cancellation or get on a waiting list. So that's your first struggle. Time marches on, and you're waiting for this appointment. Um, if the evaluation materials um, does show that there's a hyperactivity, impulsivity, um, you know, truly helps point towards that diagnosis. Um, you may then um, be prescribed a medication for that. Um, and so then a discussion ensues about what medication is that going to be? What is the dose going to be? How can we talk about side effects? The big one um, from our perspective is the role of the medication. Um, so many parents want you to write the prescription here, sign on the dotted line, great, my kid is fixed. We all know that's not the case. Um, and we have to educate parents a lot about that, so what really is the role? And then all the follow-up appointments, and I'll get to that in just a minute. This slide is the most perplexing slide that I have because, in my opinion, it's missing something, right? So here's all of you for school. Here's me in my office, and here's the parent. So that you talk to the parent, we talk to the parent, but the part I always grieve is this triangle right here. What would a payer system look like, or a health system look like that brought everybody to the table at the same time? Um, because then I feel like we're really coordinating care. 
we're thinking about, okay, how are we all speaking into the same situation? Instead of me saying to the kid, how's school going? Great. You have any missing assignments? Nope. What are your grades? Good. Uh-huh. I don't believe it, right? <laughs> um, I wasn't born yesterday, kid. Um, and I live with two kids with ADD who struggle with all of those things. So... All right, so management strategies. You're here mostly to talk about medications today, so we'll talk about that. Um, but really considered the mainstay of treatment. Um, as a rule, um, we don't give them a lot to kids less than six, um, but never say never. Um, our son started at age six, um, and I've seen my colleagues do it um, from time to time. <clears throat> I want to start by just talking about this study. Um, this study is a little bit older, um, but it does illustrate an important point. Um, they took 500-some children who had ADHD and randomized them into four groups. So some kids just got methylphenidate. That's it. Some kids didn't get med. They got some behavioral <laughs> treatment. Some kids got both, and some kids got neither. I'm kind of surprised that they could actually get to do this because they were getting kids with a diagnosis, no treatment. But um, what they found um, was that when you combined treatment and med management, um, that your patients had the best response. I think we kind of suspect that, right? We see improvement in inattention and hyperactive impulsive behavior on meds. But I think there's a couple interesting things here. Um, Patients who are getting some sort of, um, just, just a second here, I lost my train of thought. Some sort of behavioral treatment um, actually had um, improvements um, down here. Modest improvements in non-ADHD symptoms and positive functioning outcomes versus patients in the, um, in the medication management group. So this combined treatment, this idea that... Um, Pills don't treat skills was something we had been taught before, um, that when you combine these ideas, right, that kids are going to have some of the best outcomes. We're going to see that later when we talk about depression and anxiety, too. Um, because I failed tech in, high, in grad school, I'm going to switch my um, screen here a minute. Uh, I I'm going to pop up, and this is available um, on the internet. This isn't anything that's, um, this is free, actually. Um, but what we're looking at here is all of the medicines um, that are on the market under the family of stimulants called methylphenidate. Um, and so these companies are constantly coming up with new <coughs> ways um, of kind of repackaging and repurposing um, their medicines. And these are all of the doses that are available um, for these medications. Um, so you can see um, that while the methylphenidate class has been around forever, they keep coming up with different kind of ways to package this. Um, so for example, um, Quilichu is one of the few chewables that's out there. Daytrana, really the only patch that's on the market. Um, I'm going to scroll over here to Journey PM. This is a new idea uh, where the child actually takes their ADHD medicine at nighttime, um, and it has a delayed onset, so it's working when the child wakes up in the morning. So it's good for families who have horrible mornings and chaotic mornings. Um, 
because they don't have to get their kid to take a pill in the morning um, when they wake up. So um, these are kind of all of our choices, if you will, um, just for the methylphenidate class, because I can go down um, and we can look at the amphetamine class. So again, in a sense, nothing is new under the sun because these are all the same medicines. They're just kind of re, um, redistributed. So here you have an orally disintegrated tablet. Um, Adderall um, can be opened and sprinkled um, on applesauce, so it's one of the few that doesn't have to be swallowed whole. Um, so again, all the different drugs, and then all the formulations that they're available. We'll talk a little bit more about those formulations in a minute. So we tend to think mostly about the stimulants, um, which I just showed you. Um, there are a couple families of medication for ADHD that are not stimulants. One of them is atomoxetine. We know it as Stratera. Stratera kind of belongs to the family of drugs that is um, antidepressants. In fact, it first came to the market as an antidepressant. It didn't work well. They took it off the market. Um, and then went back and looked at their research and said, yeah, but some kids paid attention better when they were on it. Um, and so they brought it back. Um, the other class um, is actually these medications that are alpha-2 meds. Um, and some of these, um, quanacosine, that's how I always say it, clonidine, um, these are often used not by themselves, but in addition to a stimulant medication to provide some extra coverage. Um, like, for example, a clonidine at bedtime um, can help kids sleep. Uh, most kids with ADD have some um, sleep trouble, um, so taking something at nighttime can help them sleep. How do these medications work? Well, they work primarily on these neurotransmitters. So dopamine, um, our body loves dopamine. In fact, video games are our dopamine sense, right? Hitting like on our phones is our dopamine, set, is our dopamine receptor there. Um, and so um, that makes us feel good. Nicotine um, attaches to the dopamine receptors in our brain. Um, so it works on dopamine and then norepinephrine um, over here um, helps us a lot with um, attention and arousal. Um, and so what these medications do is they work in between these two nerves and they say no reuptake, but put more of these neurotransmitters um, in between the neurons. Um, Atomoxetine, which is Stratera, works in a similar way, but only um, on the norepinephrine um, receptor. All right, slide, um, provider follow-up is essential. Um, why do I say this? Well, I want to show you this next slide a minute. Um, this is my son, or our son, I should say. So um, I took this uh, picture. Actually, I snapped it from his chart this morning. You have one guess as to when he started taking ADD meds. <laughs> what? How old was he? I can't see, but it's six. Six. Yep. <laughs> so, so he's coming along here. He's a tall kid. He's a big kid. What happened um, in November of um, his sixth grade year when he started taking um, stimulant medication? Um, we saw him lose weight. Um, and we saw him lose quite a bit. In fact, our pediatrician was starting to scratch his head a little bit about him. Um, so this is one of the reasons why follow-up is um, so essential. 
Um, so we need to be watching these things. We're also giving kids a stimulant medication, so keeping an eye on their blood pressure both before and after treatment is very important, as well as just like a family history of heart disease. We're also trying to tease out, right, the effectiveness of this med. Um, so this is where school feedback is so helpful because if we're, again, just relying on that parent to tell us about the kid's school day, I sometimes wonder if we're getting the right, um, the right information back. So, for example, are we on the right dose? Unlike treating somebody for strep throat or an ear infection, when I can take their weight, plug it into a formula, my math spits out the answer, and I know exactly how much medicine to put them on, ADHD medicine works nothing like that. I can't take their height, I can't take their weight, I can't take their age. It is a guess where we start. We tend to, tend to start low, at least in my practice, and start stepping up um, until we get to that sweet spot. So the sweet spot of we're not making the kid a zombie, but they are attending better in school. Um, they're still sleeping decent. Um, and that's where we kind of try to stop. Um, so are we on the right dose? Um, that's one of the things we want to follow up. Are we on the right med? That's the other thing. I so wish somebody would make this flow chart that say, if your kid has this, this, and this, use this med. But remember I showed you that huge table of all of the meds out there? That flow sheet doesn't exist. Um, it is trial and error. Um, and so we tend to pick one family, the methylphenidate family or the amphetamine family, um, and kind of start there um, and start kind of seeing once what we get. So are they even on the right map? Is the school day long enough? That's another trick, right? Because no two kids metabolize that medicine the same. So if I give one kid 18 milligrams over here and another 18 milligrams over here, for this kid it's done at noon, for this kid it's done at 5 p.m. That makes no sense, right? But we see it all the time. So is your day long enough? If you have sixth period math, do you have any medicine left in your body or not? Um, this is the reason I always send a quick email to the registrar at my kid's school. Can they have morning math, please? <laughs> um, just to make sure, right, I've, we've got this um, in their system in the morning. Here's just an interesting caveat, though. Increasing the dose of the med does not increase the length of time it works. It only increases the dose for the amount of time it was going to work anyway. Um, and so that's another tricky thing. Well, we need to make the day longer. Well, how do we do that? Are we looking at middle of the day dosing? Are we looking at an after school booster dose um, to try to see if we can get them enough coverage to do their homework? Mm -hmm. This is really tricky when we talk to high school students about their transition to college. Because like I'm thinking about my own daughter who's a um, college freshman now. She has an eight o'clock class and she's got a five to eight p.m. class. So how do you make your day long enough to do that, right? What are your strategies for appetite suppression? Um, we don't think this is dose-related either. So we can't say, oh, it looks like you're not eating. Um, perhaps we should pull your dose back. Well, if we pull your dose back to try to get you to eat, we're going to lose your good day. Um, and we don't think it's dose-related anyway. Um, and so really working with families on what are high-calorie breakfasts um, that kids can eat. 
um, how can we get them to eat well when they get home, um, knowing that they're probably not going to eat well during the day at school. Right now, my 15-year-old son, our 15-year-old son, eats um, two bagels toasted, so like the big bakery bagels, with a slice of ham, a slice of cheese, and a scrambled egg on them. Two um, for breakfast. Um, but you know what he eats for lunch? Yeah. But he comes home from, from school, and you better look out, and you better just put some food out and, like, hide. Um, because he's going to eat until he goes to bed. Um, that's how we've just learned, learned to manage him. Because you can see, we've kind of figured some strategies out, right? We got him to grow. All right, I want to change hats a minute. Because I want, I want to just give you a little insight for those of you who don't go through this every month on what this looks like. So first of all, um, you get your prescription um, for your kid. Um, and I will tell you, even knowing what I know as a as a provider, as a prescriber, it's really emotional to give your kid a pill um, that's going to change their behavior. Um, it's an emotional thing. Um, give your parents some grace on that um, if they're dragging their feet about that um, because it's just hard. I remember my son telling me the first time, Mommy, this is yucky. I don't want to do this. Honey, I don't want to either, um, but we've got to figure something out. So you get your prescription. You go to visit the pharmacy. And you find out that despite your insurance, this is going to cost $85, $100 a month. So you kind of get used to that a little bit. Um, but here's the other thing. Having a child on stimulant medications, I say, is a part-time job. Why is that? Because in Michigan, and I know not everybody lives in Michigan, you can only dispense 30 days of stimulant medication at a time. It's a controlled substance. It's a class 2 controlled substance. And so what you have to do 48 hours before you're out of medicine is you have to call your prescriber, because they always want a 48-hour window, call your prescriber, tell them you need more meds, um, and they send them to your pharmacy. And then if you happen to call a day early, even though you're almost out of meds, your insurance may not let you fill it on that day because it hasn't been enough days. Or, I'm sorry that you're leaving on vacation tomorrow um, and you're going to be out of meds, but you can't fill this prescription today because it hasn't been enough days in between. Um, and so then you have to do an insurance workaround. Um, so it's really tricky to get your timing right. And remember that ADHD and ADD is highly familial. So you're asking a parent to do a task that is very time-oriented and detail-oriented. Um, and so sometimes you think, well, how on earth did parents let their kids run out of meds? Oh, I know exactly why. Um, because you, forget, you think, oh, I'm going to call on my way to work. Um, but then on the way to work, you got a phone call from someone else. Well, I'll call my way home from work. Well, then you worked late that day, and it's 530, and you can't call anymore. Um, in the meantime, your kid took their last pill. Um, so this is really tricky. And then I stop and think, I reflect a minute, English is my first language. I have a vehicle to get to the pharmacy, and um, I can pay for my medicine. And I have a cell phone that has minutes on it. When I think about the families that I see, many of them have none of those four things. Um, and so how blessed am I, and how do I even dare complain um, about the process? 
Um, you also, when you pick up your prescription, have to show your um, driver's license because it's a controlled substance, and they take down your driver's license number. Um, so it's quite a process. I do it for two kids, both of which have different refill times. Um, so I do it, um, yeah, it's a part-time job. So, all right, what do we know about long-term stimulant use? Um, an abundance of evidence shows that stimulant use in teens actually prevents substance abuse. If you have a teen who's struggling um, with racing thoughts, inability to be still, um, boy, marijuana fits that bill too. Um, and if they decide to try that, um, it's, they're going to like that a lot better than their stimulant. So how about we control their symptoms so they don't go looking outside um, for control? Um, Long-term-wise, um, growth concerns um, can be an issue, like I showed you with my son. Dosage adjustments over time, that's always a really good question. You would think, right, that as kids get older, we have to keep jumping their dose up. It's actually not always true because as the brain grows and matures, the prefrontal cortex starts to work better. So we start to have a better balance, right, of gas pedal and brakes. And so actually as they grow up, even though they grow bigger, they gain weight better, remember the weight and growth isn't predictive of their dose, it's the effect. And so you may actually um, have a kid whose do dose doesn't need as much adjustment as they get older. Could you, could you talk about that, the sort of drug Yeah. I'm just curious. So there's a good question, right? Um, do you treat your kids 365 days a year? Or do you treat them on school days? Do you treat them... Um, do you treat them on spring break? Uh, these are really good questions. And parents have a variety of opinions on this. Um, I will tell you from my seat, um, when I'm in my provider seat, um, I tend to have a conversation back to the parent and say, well, tell me what things are like at home, right, when your kid doesn't take their medicine. And if I start getting a dissertation from the parents about how their lives are horrible um, and the kid's fighting with the sibling all the time and they can't get anything done, um, I'm like, you know what? The amount of negative feedback you're going to give your kid over the weekend to give him a drug holiday isn't worth it. It's not worth it for your relationship. There's no science that says your kid has to take a drug holiday. Um, I, you know, We tend to say in those situations, don't. Um, the other thing is the research is pretty clear about kids who are off their ADD medicines who are driving. So let's think about impulsivity. Let's think about hyperactivity, right? Um, do I really want my kid off their um, ADHD meds on the weekend picking up his friends to go to a football game? Ooh, I don't know about that. Um, so... I think there's good reasons, too. If your kid is just an inattentive type kid, um, they're going to do fine on the weekend. Absolutely, take them off. We don't want to medicate a kid who doesn't need it. If your kid is a hyperactive, impulsive kid, um, personally, I think they're better on. Um, and that's from my seat as a parent and a provider. Yeah. Is there an age range where you recommend to wean kids off of ADHD meds? So that comes back to effect, right? Because I'm of the opinion that we don't outgrow it. It just starts to look different. Um, it was very interesting. I had, when I was on the worship committee at church, um, we had a complaint, if you will, 
about um, people who played the piano in the background while the pastor was praying. Um, and so I kind of t- tried to tease the complaint about it. I said, well, tell me what it is about that that you, know, you don't like and want that to stop. Well, I can't pay attention at all when, you're, when the pastor's praying if you're playing the piano, he said to me. And I said, oh, do you struggle with attention? Oh, I had ADHD so bad when I was a kid, but I don't take meds anymore. Um, and so, again, like he sits in church fine, right? But I think you just start to see some attention stuff. But again, I think it's going to depend as an adult on what type of work do you go into. If you work with your hands and you're outside a day, all day, you may not need to take it. If you're going to be a computer programmer and sit at your desk um, and try to write code and all these crazy things, you're probably going to need to stay on. So I think it depends. And I don't think there's one size fits all to that, if that helps. Yeah. Are there any programs in place that help families that maybe are not wealthy? Yes. So most of the um, drug companies um, have um, programs um, that help people who have difficulties paying for their meds. So this is in Michigan. Um, In Michigan, the Medicaid's, so all of the Medicaid programs have their preferred drugs, but they have really good coverage. And your prescribers, if we can't get you on the drug we want, we have a way of working it around with prior authorizations, and we can get you what you need. For families um, like ours, who isn't on Medicaid but has high deductibles and co-pays and such, um, there's programs like Vyvanse has a program right now for $30 a month. That's a medication that would cost $500 um, if you were just paying cash for it. Journey has a program right now for $75 a month. That's another $500 medication. So I think if you're working with a family, we can't afford this, um, have them talk to their office because their office has all of these resources um, that they can then get, like, go the back door, um, and they have a lot of resources to help. So. All right. I want to talk a little bit about depression and anxiety um, as comorbidities to ADHD or standing alone by themselves. Um, I don't have to tell you um, that anxiety and depression are hitting record highs right now. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics on the 19th, so two days ago, um, declared a mental health pediatric emergency in the country. Um, It's on their website just in response to what's happening right now. Um, So thinking about our our kids, right? Females are much more likely to internalize these diagnoses. So I tend to say these girls, right? They have somatic complaints all day. I have a headache, I have a stomachache, my back hurts, my knee hurts, um, I'm dizzy. That's a huge one. Um, We have seen an increase in chief complaint of dizziness. What these girls are doing is hyperventilating behind their masks all day. Um, And I'm not saying that as a mask. Don't take it that way. But they're subtly hyperventilating all day, um, and they're making themselves dizzy. Um, And so then they go home from school because they don't feel good. Um, And then at the root of that, after we rule out that there's nothing wrong with their heart and their lungs, uh, we're landing at anxiety. we're starting to actually circumvent the whole diagnostic process, starting with anxiety um, and then working the other way. Um, 
males are much more likely to be externalizing, so they're mad. They're mad at the world. They punch a hole in the wall. They're not going to do it. They're going to yell back at you. Um, and those behaviors are so hard. Those are anxious behaviors for boys. Um, and sometimes um, the stimulant medications actually make those behaviors a little worse. So sometimes if you're going up on your stimulant because you're trying to get control of some of these behaviors, you're actually making those anxiety behaviors worse. You actually have to back off the stimulant um, and come at it from the anxiety's perspective, which is exactly what we saw in our son. Uh, when we took the stimulant back, um, he actually did better. So um, a little bit about the, a little bit about the prevalence right now. It's really important that we implement universal screening for these kids. It's amazing on the office side um, to read some of the way the kids fill out their screening tools and just telling you, I'm not sleeping well, I feel hopeless, um, I have a lot of difficulty you know, with fatigue. Um, so we call it the great imposter diagnosis. We know that kids with ADD are more likely over the course of their lifetime to have anxiety and depression than kids who don't have ADD. But it's also a very much a standalone diagnosis as well. So in short, um, these both arise from brain structure, processing and signaling. Um, the treatment for depression and anxiety um, looks very similar. Um, and if we're treating this medically, um, we're using a, a drug class called the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, this is the first line of treatment for these disorders. Um, I'm going to come back to this, actually. Um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, help us to not reabsorb serotonin. Serotonin is our feel-good neurotransmitter, similar to dopamine, although not as excitatory. Um, so um, some of them also have some norepinephrine component to it. Um, the most researched med in this family is Prozac or fluoxetine for kids. Um, it comes actually in liquid formulation, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or something I should be sad about, um, that we've needed to treat kids very, very young who can't swallow pills um, with fluoxetine. Um, so I'm going to go back to the meds a minute. Again, writing the prescription is the easy part. Um, I'm going to come back to a few of those things. Um, just like st stimulants, though, which med we choose and what dose we start on um, is both an art and a science. Um, you could read 10 articles and find 10 different conclusions about where you should start and on what dose. Um, we know that with these medications, the, the runway is long. In other words, you're not going to start your med on Monday and on Wednesday say, oh, my depression is so much better. If they're telling you that, that's the placebo effect. It's not the med. Now, if I put you on a stimulant on Monday, by Wednesday or Thursday, you should be like, oh, this does make a difference, right? The runway's really short. Long runway, two to four weeks, probably. We try not to see these kids back before four weeks um, because it's going to take about that long um, to really get this medicine in your system. All of the SSRIs for teens have a black box warning. What is that? The FDA put a black box on these meds um, that said that the use of these medications in children and teenagers um, 
increases the risk of suicide in this population? Well, thanks, is what I want to say to that, because that's a chicken and the egg conversation. Um, are kids at risk for suicide anyway? Yes. If I put them on meds, does that make them more at risk? I don't know. Did I energize them enough to be able to commit suicide? Maybe. Were they going to anyway? Maybe. Um, so there's been a lot of writing about this black box warning, a lot of research. It has not been removed. <clears throat> the length of treatment. Um, we like to say to kids, if I'm going to put you on this medicine, the best evidence we have right now says that from the time you tell me you're feeling a little bit better um, until we take you off from it is going to be a year. Provided we can time that year right. I don't want you coming off this medicine in the summer before you move to college for the first time, right? Perhaps we should just treat you till Christmas then. Um, so we time that very well. We ask patients not to quit without talking to us about it, about ways to step down their therapy so that they don't feel yucky because that serotonin withdrawal symptoms, um, serotonin withdrawal feels yucky. It feels like um, the flu. Um, for patients who are very difficult to get into a remission status, um, there's actually a role of pharmacogenetics. We can swab you and find out um, what genetically medications you would respond best to. Uh, we tend to only do that in patients who are difficult responders. We don't do that to everyone because it's very expensive. Um, and given kind of where we are in the world right now, um, we've been able to make partnerships with some of the area psychiatrists where they'll, they'll consult with us over the phone. They don't want to see our patient. They don't have time for that. But they'll help us if we're getting stuck. Uh, we can get them on the phone and talk it through. So the depression um, treatment flow sheet chart, this actually comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics, talking about how do you start meds, how do you know if you should adjust meds, uh, when you should refer, um, all of that good stuff. Back to this part, though. So writing the prescription is the easy part. It takes me 30 seconds. Side effect management. Um, that's tough, right? Especially in females, because at baseline, they're very suggestive to headaches, stomach aches, I'm not sleeping well, my ankle hurts. Um, so are we going to, you know, how do we talk through that and think about what did you have before the medicine? Is the medicine make, making this better or worse? I have very few patients, actually, that stop taking their medicine because of side effects. Very, very few. Um, teaching them about um, taking their medicine, doesn't, it just plain doesn't work if they don't take it. Um, and so we talk about how can you remember, um, what are some strategies for that. Typically these meds aren't too activating in kids, so they can take them morning or night. Doesn't matter to me, just take it. Managing their expectations both about time, it's not going to work the first day you take it. Um, so you have to be prepared for that long runway. But also, the true, what really makes your depression and anxiety better, it's working on changing your thought process. Now, does the medication work for that? Absolutely. But the TAD study, the Treatment of Adolescents with Depression study, looked at 600 kids that had depression, and they split them into four groups. For one group, they did nothing. Again, I can't believe they got away with that. The other group, um, they gave uh, Prozac or Fluoxetine to. The other group, they just sent to therapy. And the fourth group, they did both, um, therapy and meds. 
and then they watched these kids for a year. The kids that did the best were the therapy alone kids and the therapy with meds kids. What do Americans like to do to treat their conditions? Take a pill, right? You take a pill, I can make everything better. The research tells us, uh-uh. Now, can I make a patient um, go to therapy? I can't. The patient has to have buy-in. Um, and sometimes that's a process we work towards. Um, in 2021, can I find a therapist who will take you? The therapists are full um, with waiting lists. So that's another whole conversation. Um, so it's really important that you learn to think about all of those thinking errors kids have, right? So-and-so didn't talk to me in the hallway today. Therefore, they don't like me anymore. Why don't they like me? Oh, because I'm stupid. Why am I stupid? I got a D on that test. So I'm both stupid and he doesn't like me. Therefore, I'm a rotten person, right? If we can get kids to challenge that thinking, well, maybe he didn't talk to you in the um, hallway today because he didn't see you. Is this possible? Or he's so busy in his own head, right? He isn't time for what's in your head. Um, or we call it catastrophizing, right? I got a D on my test, therefore I'm going to fall. I'm going to fail out of school. No, 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 no. You got a D on your test because did you study? Well, no. Well, okay. You know, you can start working through all that other stuff, right? But we've got to change the way kids are thinking, and meds don't do that. Okay. Care management. How do we follow up on these kids? And then follow up visits are really important as well. I'm going to run out of time here. Okay, this is my last slide, and then I'll take some questions if there are any. The million-dollar question in 2021 is, what do we know about trauma in kids? Um, trauma-informed care. I just heard the phrase at Calvin last week, trauma-informed pedagogy, um, is a big term. Um, what do we know and what do we wish we knew? What do we know? Not as much as you would like. What do we wish we knew? Exactly what trauma does to the brain um, that makes them look like they have ADD and look like they have anxiety and look like they have depression. I attended a conference um, where the speaker was talking about trauma-informed care and listed the symptoms of kids with trauma. And she got done, and I said, that's the exact list for a kid who has ADHD. She said, yes, it is. And I said, so how do you tell? Good question, she said. You got to talk to the family, um, and you got to see once what's going on. The ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Is anybody aware of this? Is this familiar? Okay, good. Um, so, how are we using this? Right, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So, abuse, neglect, household dis dysfunction. All of these things change the brain um, and change the brain to look like they have. We have other diagnoses. Um, and so how does that weigh in? I think it's a really good question. I pose that as a question today, not an answer. I had an interesting conversation as of yesterday um, with um, one of the nursing recruiters at the Kent County Health Department. We were asking her a bunch of questions because we're looking at our curriculum with different um, eyes right now. I said to her, Joan, what is the one thing Calvin nursing graduates need to know about pediatrics? She said, ACEs, how to use it, how to interpret it, what it means. I said, for real? Like, let's talk about infectious disease, asthma, childhood obesity. Nope, ACEs, she said. I thought, okay, got it. We can build that in, you know. But again, um, 
so this is, I think as we're looking forward at the research, um, this is going to be really interesting. If I were to do this again in a couple years, things will be different, I think. So, or maybe we'll think about things a little differently. So, um, this is uh, both an art and a science. Um, the current medical space um, presents challenges for parents, patients, and providers. Future research is needed. But this is kind of my overriding question, right? Why is healthcare providers, education, or educators, and child psychologists are needed to bridge the gaps in care for these kids for the best outcomes? So what's the best care model? How can we leverage technology to provide these new care models? How can we reform the payer systems to help with both the cost of these medications and reimbursements for care and care coordination, right? Um, what if at your conference with a family you had a prescriber on a screen as a part of that, right? Does that keep the kid in school? Keeping the kid in school has huge long-term payoffs, right? So how the kid do better in school? So how can we inform a payoff, a payer system about that? Um, how can we legislate that? Um, these are all things that go through my head um, that I don't often land on answers for. I don't know if you guys have any of those. Um, but anyway, that's what I have. Um, I, if there are questions, I don't know if there's time for questions. Um, I'd be happy to try. Yes? So here at Teacher Parents are right around the corner. Okay. And I have two little friends in mind. Like, how do you even broach the subject? Like, hey, this is what I'm seeing in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What are the next steps? And is that when you do the testing or suggest the testing? Yeah. So it'd be curious, right, to, um, to approach that from, like, is this also what you're seeing at home? Okay. Um, you know, like, right, what grade do you teach? First. First. So this is probably the kid who sits in the back seat, right, and can't keep their hands to themselves. In the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is driving, like, the sibling crazy in the back seat of the car, right? So if you can just tie in some of those things, right, and thinking, too, not only how does this impact your child academically, that's only a piece of the puzzle. How does that impact your kids socially, right? Because kids don't want to be that kid's friend, right? They drive them kind of crazy. My son has gone through periods of that where it's been a little tricky to make friends because he, he's kind of blurty and, yeah, a little bit hyper. And so, you know, kind of approaching that from a how does school and home look the same, what are our goals, how does this affect him socially and academically, um, and just think, too, from a parent perspective, um, how much negative reinforced work, how much negativity is directed at that kid. Quit touching your sibling. Stop it. Stop it. Right? Like, are you saying that to your kid all day? Because that's not good either. Um, so how do we kind of change some of that? Um, so I don't know how your school goes about that. Um, the, the pediatrician's office likely has a pathway to help families work through. Um, we're blessed in Grand Rapids because both of our kids were eventually able to be assessed through All Belong um, to receive a diagnosis. So we felt very fortunate for that. Um, but then there's also assessment pathways through places like, again, this is a Grand Rapids thing, but like Pine Rest um, has an assessment pathway. Um, what do they call that? The center. You know, Brains, Brains is excellent. Um, Brains is another place um, in Grand Rapids where kids can go. Love them. 
they give the best reports ever. Um, like it's 20 pages, both sides, like all of their findings and recommendations. Um, but yeah, there's a way through at several different places. If your child has Medicaid, um, they have to go through community mental health, um, which can be a little challenging, but um, it's available. So, yeah. Kind of building off of your question, how do you go about the conversation when it's time to have that conversation with a parent, but they are like 100% refusing any advancement of that, like refusal of any medication, like what would okay. kind of be your opinion to take with the next step? Oh, that's so hard, isn't it? Um, so it's curious where that comes from, right? Um, so where's where's the breakdown? So I don't know if you can lean into that a little bit. Like, did they receive? So are they reading a mommy blogger on a line, or are they, you know, really truly reading the research about how these meds work? Um, so is there some mistruth there? So I think that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing, too, is maybe um, creating a shared goal. We would, in healthcare, we would call that motivational interviewing, right? So I find out what's important to you, um, and then I use that to build where my interventions come from. So I don't know how, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know this family, but thinking, you know, is it important to you that your kid does well socially, academically? Because kind of where we're at right now, we're not achieving those goals. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, moving forward, again, so it's kind of a, kind of a, like, your goal. So how can we achieve your goal, too? Not my goal, but we have the same okay. goal, right? Yeah. So I don't know, are you familiar with motivational interviewing? It's kind of, like, look at, Google it. It's kind of interesting. It's a technique for working with resistant people. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's tricky, right? And I think we're only beginning to understand that. So I think there's been some early studies that says maybe, um, maybe. But sometimes you don't know, too, right? Like depending on the source of the trauma, would they have had that anyway? Um, is this, you know, something new? Um, so I think you'd have to um, go very slowly um, in that, thinking about the introduction um, of meds and how you're assessing how they work, but not neglecting that trauma piece either, right? So how are we working through some of that, kind of resolving some of that, helping the child build new coping strategies around that? So that would for sure be a kid for me who needs a two-tier approach, not just a, oh, take this pill and you're going to be well. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not going to work. So... Any other final questions? Are your slides available for us to view? If you, um, I don't know how to do that, but I will. Um, <laughs> you can make that happen. Yeah. Um, I would have to ask the tech person in my classroom to do that. So, um, but I will. I can make them available. I, there's nothing proprietary on them. Check check the website later on. We'll make sure a link gets up there. Yeah. Do you, um, do you ever do talks at schools? Um, I haven't, but I would be open to. Um, would, the, would the audience be fellow educators or parents? <laughs> I would be open to, yeah. Um, I can give you my card. If I have one with you. <laughs>